1: A vegan diet can sustain life, but it's, it's not optimal. Hey,
0: everybody. Welcome to another episode of Health Theory. Today, we are joined by somebody who is going to make your brains leak out through your ears, the one and only Dom D'Agostino. Dom, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Tom. Dude, I'm excited to have you back. The last time we talked about the brain and all the things around optimizing that, but this time I want to dive into like some really juicy stuff. So I heard you in a podcast say something that I've heard other people sort of dance around, but you really came out and said, we need to make this a primetime thing. We need to get everybody focused on if you want to avoid getting sick in these very troubling times, then you need to base. You didn't say stay lean, but you said that the heavier people get, the more at risk they are. And they've got to know that. And they've got to get the weight down. And when you say weight, I assume you mean body fat. Why does that matter?
1: Well, I mean, it can mean body fat, but um, we're in interesting times. And uh, with COVID, the main risk factor that's not really being discussed as much as it should be is metabolic health. I mean, that's why we have, you know, the conference Metabolic Health Summit, Mm -hmm. which is bringing together clinicians and scientists and networkers uh, to discuss this topic before COVID even hit. Uh, And we do know that if you have hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia, type 2 diabetes, if you're overweight, if you're obese, you're astronomically at a higher risk for contracting but having a poor outcome if you have COVID-19 infections, whether it be you know, just your immune system or your uh, atherogenic risk or uh, your body's ability to cope. You know, if you have hyperglycemia and high inflammation, that's a burden that your body has to deal with in addition to the COVID infection. And that could also exacerbate the inflammatory response. So uh, having optimal metabolic health in terms of low insulin, you know, low glycemic variability, low glucose overall, Uh, And just uh, uh, optimizing your cardiometabolic biomarkers is the way to combat this uh, disease. And it's not, there's not a whole lot of attention, uh, funding, and resources being put into that right now.
0: right. So there's two different arguments. There's body positivity. And I love that. And I want people to feel good. And like you are where you are. And I don't think people should waste time beating themselves up unless it's useful to them as like a minor little kickstart to get things moving. But that's complicated. We'll set that aside. So I don't want people to shame themselves and all that. But at the same time, if you are more likely to die, suffer negative outcomes, then it's something that we at least from an information standpoint, we want to make sure that people understand so that they can take control and get whatever outcome they desire. So if people were to steer by the easy visual outcome of fat, are they going to be moving in the right direction? Or is, there, is it really true that you can be carrying excess body fat and still be completely
1: healthy? Uh, yes, that's true. And I think what we need to <clears throat> sort of look at is objective biomarkers of metabolic health. If in the context of low blood pressure, you know, low fasting blood glucose, low insulin, low uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, low uh, hemoglobin A1C, uh, optimal, you know, low triglycerides, so that's just some of the biomarkers that they are those mostly
0: like, dancing around inflammation. Is that really uh, what we're trying to to keep down?
1: What I just described were cardiometabolic biomarkers, and I think the best snapshot of your overall health and well being, and your ultimately your longevity, will rely just upon like maybe six to ten, you know, objective biomarkers that we can easily measure, even at home. There's like kids that we
0: Slowly-ish, like I've I've actually longed for this answer, Mm -hmm. but people always—it's like so much heady shit—and I can't track it. Like, what are those?
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, well, our conversation, you know, prior to getting on the show here, was talking about continuous glucose monitoring. So that is a technology maybe everyone not at this time can afford, but it's probably the most important metabolic biomarker that we can track and should keep control of so you can okay, do so fi- anybody
0: that doesn't know glucose sugar right could come in yeah. the form of carbohydrate yeah it's not always going to say sugar on the package but your body turns that into glucose which glucose. is essentially sugar in your bloodstream
1: yeah and the lower the better so um why <laughs> why because well if you're fasting blood glucose uh or say average glycemia that you can measure, directly measure with a continuous glucose monitor, the correlate to that indirect would be hemoglobin A1c. And if you're above 6.5, you're diabetic. And that's basically
0: how much sugar has bound to your, I forget
1: which cell. Glycated hemoglobin, red blood
0: cell. Okay. So red blood cells have sticky sugar molecules stuck to them and they become inefficient or are they actually at that point? Problematic. Well,
1: it's just, it is a, uh, a correlate to the level of glycemia that you have in your body. And we know that proteins getting glycated, that's not a good thing. But uh, the important thing is that if your inflammation markers, and a global marker would be uh, C-reactive protein uh, or high-sensitive C-reactive protein, which can measure in that low range. So if your immune system becomes activated, for example, if you have uh, an intestinal bug like a gastroenteritis, whether bacterial or viral, and I've seen this before in myself and traveling and getting like a little stomach bug, HSCRP goes through the roof. And this kind of results, you know, the etiology of all this is in the gut, right? So if your gut lining becomes compromised in any way through a virus or bacterial or something that you eat, uh, then that triggers inflammation. And I've, I've gotten like a stomach bug, you know, maybe two or three times in the last 10 years. And I quickly do uh, a whole cardiometabolic blood work profile. And just to see what's happening, just to see what's happening, because and it has, it's been very insightful and in basically showing that your immune system really goes haywire if there's any kind of perturbation uh, in the intestinal mucosa. And that can trigger permeability of the blood-brain barrier, and that can be neurotoxic. I mean, if you want to put a term to it, because Mm. uh, and this can happen if you have, uh, you know, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes simplex virus, uh, various cytomegalovirus. So if people have, if they get shingles, for example, it'll start off with a headache, and one way to avoid it being exacerbated is to just go into a fast. Or go into a ketogenic state right there, and if your your gut is compromised and your blood-brain barrier is compromised, and you're introducing food, there's a lot of toxins in the food that we're eating. You know, whether Just it be plant, a normal no matter what business. kind of diet yeah you're eating, uh, and even drinking water. So uh, that becomes an additional challenge. And our immune system is kind of like an army, and there's only so much of a reserve that the army can have. But if you are under a chronically inflammatory state then that army is occupied. And when you introduce things into the body, then there's very little reserve to deal with what's going on. If you're in a restricted diet, like an elimination diet, or if you're fasting, then you have all those reserves. Like your immune system is hypervigilant against whatever's coming into your body because it's not dealing with the talk, to- it's not trying to detoxify, your liver's not working, everything is sort of uh, hypervigilant to be able to deal with, you know, the, the toxin. Mm-hmm. So, and, and your blood brain barrier is, uh, less compromised too in that context. So I think when we're in these vulnerable states, when we're dealing with an infection, when we're dealing with, uh, whether it be like herpes simplex virus or shingles or cytomegalovirus or, uh, a variety of different, uh, chronic sort of viral diseases or bacterial like Lyme disease too is a big one. And I think, the etiology of many neurodegenerative diseases is actually a pathogen. And if you look at people with Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases, you find the Borrelia bacteria within the brain, and many of them test positive for Lyme disease. So it's a very controversial topic, and I think it needs to be studied more. The testing for Lyme disease needs, needs to be studied more because it can go dormant, and then you're basically it shows that you're uh, not uh, have an active you know, uh, disease process. But um, in the context of many pathogens, whether it be viral, whether it be bacterial, or if you are dealing with a inflammatory issue, fasting and a ketogenic diet, which mimics many aspects of fasting can be very beneficial.
0: Okay. So that part, I don't understand. So I've got a chronic virus. Does it apply to COVID as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I've
0: got a Mm -hmm. chronic virus, could be COVID, could be herpes, could be whatever. Mm -hmm. And now my immune system is going crazy. It's trying to deal Mm -hmm. with that. Then I eat and I introduce more bacteria, more viruses, more Mm -hmm. things that are problematic, whatever those might be. So that I fully understand. But why... If the real issue is the breakdown of the lining of my gut, which allows something into my bloodstream, which then triggers my immune, which then breaks down the barrier in my brain, which then allows Mm -hmm. toxins into my brain, why would a diet or a taking exogenous ketones, something that mimics a fasted state, still be useful? Because my immune system is still occupied and I've Mm. still introduced something problematic. So what is it about the um, fasting mimicking protocol that allows my immune system to
1: be useful. So there's multiple things going on. One is that it's, you are clearing various things in the blood that could be perceived as a toxin, an antigen, that would otherwise occupy your immune system. So this idea of your immune system being like an army and there's limited reserves to that army. Uh, When you're in a fasted state, the gut is always regenerating with stem cells. So during, uh, during a fasting period, it can actually increase the production of stem cells. So you're actually making the, the intestinal mucosa. And then by, by connection with the intestinal mucosa, the tight junctions, that becomes a more firm barrier function. Inside, we have an open tube from our mouth to our anus. And that's uh if, and that's continuous exposure to the environment. And the more impermeable we make that barrier function, the better our immune system is going to be. We have 70 to 80% of our immune system is in our gut. So I get it
0: on the fasting. What I don't understand, though, is why a, um, I'm assuming taking exogenous ketones, something that gives me that a can sort help. of mimicked, yeah. but why? Why does that work?
1: Well, if you're on a ketogenic diet or taking exogenous ketones, that is... Um, that can deal with a number of gut issues, that gut dysbiosis that could contribute to uh, a breakdown of the intestinal mucosa and then the tight junctions. For example, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, uh, typically a consequence of a high carb diet, processed food, going fasting, or uh, there's research now looking at exogenous ketones and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We know that a carbohydrate restricted diet Uh, Elimination diet can help in that regard, Uh, and like I mean, it goes back to this: the health of your gut will dictate, since your immune system is uh, intimately linked to your gut. It will uh, overall boost your immune system because there's less, uh, you know, challenges for your immune system. Realize that exogenous ketones
0: ketones help with the junctions.
1: Yeah, that research is ongoing, but there's so many other things. So just prior to coming on here, I looked. Uh, I just I went to clinicaltrials.gov and I put in exogenous ketones to see what new clinical trials and 96 clinical trials came up. The last yes. time I was here, it might have been a dozen, but there's 96 wow. clinical trials looking at ketone supplementation. From most of it was like cardiovascular disease. There was cognitive, cancer. There was like. Like probably a couple dozen with cancer looking into that uh covid nineteen c o p d cystic fibrosis what are people uh, that's just a C's. Are hoping I mean, is the, yeah
0: what are people are what are they hoping is the mechanism at play with ketones? Obviously it's a yeah. guess. this is early trials. I'm just curious if there's one sort of central thesis about what ketones are doing so yeah. like i had never heard the gut junction before you're very clear it's mm-hmm. ongoing yeah but is there something is it stimulating stem cells i'm making this shit up i'm just curious <laughs> though like what yeah. what people are hoping or guessing at
1: well we know that certain metabolic markers are improved with exogenous ketones so they're being tested for type 2 diabetes right now even type 1 diabetes i was interested to see that so, if your metabolic markers are improving, if glycemia is going down and being more stable, uh, if it's targeting various inflammatory pathways, we know that that's beneficial. So, improving cardiometabolic health biomarkers, that's one way. But we also know that the ketone bodies, beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate, uh, are based are signaling molecules. They are hormones in the body. And then and the do those
0: get created on a ketogenic diet?
1: So, on a ketogenic diet, uh, we experience hyperketonemia directly proportional to fatty acid oxidation in the liver. So, that triggers a process called ketogenesis. And uh, fatty acid oxidation contributes to the production of acetyl CoA, and then that can condense and form acetoacetate and then beta hydroxybutyrate, which then enters circulation. And beta hydroxybutyrate is the main circulatory ketone or ketone in circulation and it's usually in about a four to one or three to one ratio with acetoacetate so
0: just to really simplify are these all uh, metabolites of fat metabolism
1: they are so i think of you know when we start fasting or go on a ketogenic diet glucose goes down Mm -hmm. if we say fasting is easier glucose goes down glucose availability to the brain becomes limited so we liberate fat from our adipose tissue, and that through beta-oxidation of fatty acids in the liver, it takes long uh, water-insoluble fat molecules and chops them up like a wood chipper. In an to enzymatic smaller, process? Uh, yeah, there's, it's an enzymatic process where you break down fatty, like beta-oxidation of fatty acids is sort of a metabolic enzymatic process. And the breakdown products of fat are beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate, and they're water-soluble fat molecules that then readily enter circulation. And they can cross, the benefit is that they can cross membranes through the monocarboxylic acid transporter and the blood-brain barrier, so they can freely get into cells and stimulate, you know, energetic metabolism from the level of the mitochondria. And they do it better than glucose. And we can explain why if we can talk about, you know, the glucose, uh, the GLUT3 transporter, pyruvate dehydrogenase, you know, complex. I'm trying so, to like keep got, this shit grounded here, Dom. Well, like, okay, this so is getting very complicated. There are many diseases where there's glucose impairment, and mm. the ketones can bypass those uh, enzymatic, you know, rate-limiting enzymes like PDH complex or transporters, which would be the glucose-3 transporter in the brain. If we're just talking about the brain. So if we consume exogenous ketones, then we put that right into circulation, but going back to, you asked about uh, ketone production in the body. So you know, ketone production directly correlates with suppression of insulin and insulin signaling, and that then contributes to a higher fatty acid oxidation, not only in the muscle, but also in the liver, mm. and then accelerated fat oxidation, which never occurs with a standard American diet or a normal diet that people follow. Because we'll, it
0: has carbohydrate, sugar, yeah, tons of glucose Yeah, a little response. bit of
1: carbohydrates can really shut this process off. So that's why if your ketones are elevated even a little bit, that basically shows that you are oxidizing far more fat than 99% of the population. That's why ketones are an excellent biomarker or indicator of your fatty acid oxidation set, state. So breath ketones are probably more <clears throat> important because... Beta-hydroxybutyrate, when we're making it in the liver and it gets in circulation, it can give our brain energy and has anti-inflammatory effects and functions as a hormone. But uh, it's being used for energy. So if we're sitting here in a fasted state and my ketones are five, and I go for a quick walk around here, I could drop it down to one or two because the body's using that as a source of energy. Whereas your breath acetone is a really, really accurate indicator of your fatty acid oxidation state because we're blowing it off. It's not really being used as fuel. Uh, and it becomes a really important biomarker if you want to track your fat burning state. So right. probably me... more important than beta-hydroxybutyrate and the breath acetone device I gave you, the Biosense yes. device is probably, it's an FDA approved device, is probably the best device out there for that. And it becomes really important tool that one can use for fasting. if if burning fat To is see if you're actually getting into ketosis. Yeah. Like if that's, you know, the ranges are from zero to 40 and if you're at 30 or 40, I mean, your fat metabolism is maxed out. Mm. Uh, whereas if beta-hydroxybutyrate, if you're pretty active and you're using beta-hydroxybutyrate as fuel and you're concerned because you're not getting above one or you're like at 0.5 or one, that could be, you could be a good ketone producer. But a super ketone utilizer mm. because your tissues is sucking up. How that do you tell fuel. the difference
0: then between whether you're just really good at making and using or you're just not good at making?
1: Yeah, well, something that I thought of, I called it, I kind of termed this, this made this term ketone tolerance test. So there's a glucose tolerance test where you consume glucose and you look at the profile of mm. glycemia over time. And the In faster it goes down, the more the better. Uh, More insulin sensitive you are, and the better glucose meaning pull the sugar out of
0: the bloodstream, put it into cells, fat cells essentially.
1: So athletes are, you know, really quick. They'll sort of, uh, and if you're in a fasted state, you know, if you ate a lot of carbs the day before, your liver glycogen could be topped off. But if you're like in a normal state, and you consume a massive bolus of glucose and you clear it from your blood, that's a good thing. So with ketones, we find that athletes will dispose of the ketones faster too. So if you consume ketones and uh, you clear it from your blood really fast, which athletes do, then that's what we call like a ketone tolerance test. And if you don't clear the ketones from your blood, if you're a sedentary person, this is more likely to happen. So the ketones circulate around a while and it takes a while to clear it from your blood. But the more metabolically fit you are and the more the higher metabolic flexibility, the more fat adapted or keto adapted you are, the more the faster you're going to clear ketones from your blood. So this is important for people that are measuring pricking their finger and measuring beta hydroxybutyrate because many athletes that I communicate with, they're like they can't get above like 0.5 or even, you know, 1 in a in a fasted state. But if they blow into a breath acetone monitor like a biosense they see their breath acetone is like off the charts and that would correlate very well with their fat oxidation state whereas they the beta hydroxybutyrate is underrepresented because they are such a fine-tuned machine their bodies are using the ketones for fuel Mm. and your brain's using it for fuel too okay
0: so that all makes sense now i'm still trying to hunt down this idea that taking exogenous ketones because I again, I understand why the mechanism works from a fasting standpoint. Mm-hmm. Taking exogenous ketones, if you were testing all of my meaningful markers for, for mm-hmm. ketosis, yeah. would you be able to tell the difference between, like if I lied to you and I said, oh, Dom, I've been fasting for three days and you take my blood readings, could you tell this motherfucker's lying? He obviously took exogenous ketones because we're reading it in his blood, but yeah. there are also these other markers. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that's where I'm like, does adding something in, if I'm already doing all the damage, yeah. is there something really that magical about ketones where my body's like, whoa, if there are ketones present, then do all yeah. this stuff because it means you know, whatever from an evolutionary standpoint.
1: Yeah. So the question, I mean, st- maybe, maybe stated a little bit differently because I want to answer it the right way, is that if you don't follow a ketogenic diet, if you follow any diet, standard American diet, and you add ketones, is that giving you any meaningful benefit? Yes. Maybe. So uh, you can kind of hack the system and consume exogenous ketones, and that was the whole idea behind our research because we pitched the idea of a ketogenic diet to the Department of Defense, Office of Navy Research. They didn't like the idea of changing the diet, and they wanted a ketogenic diet and a drug for the anti-seizure effects. And this makes sense because the clinical application of the ketogenic diet, the, the origin of the ketogenic diet is 100 years ago, and that was mm. for seizures. So it made sense that if you induce rapidly a state of hyperketonemia, then the ketones we know provide energy, make the brain more resilient, and then it also activates anti-seizure pathways, like it elevates GABA, you know, reduces glutamate signaling and, and inflammation too. So the same, and that's in the context of seizures. So the ketones, think about it like in the evolutionary context, if we're fasting and ketones are elevated, that beta-hydroxybutyrate becomes a very high amplitude signal to tell the rest of our body that we are in a fasted state. So it just jumps out if you do like a full metabolomic profile of all the things popping out, beta-hydroxybutyrate comes up really high. Uh, And that was actually the motivation for one of the studies uh, that was done at Yale looking at fasting and fasting and the anti-inflammatory effects of fasting. If they took a metabolomic profile of the animals or humans, beta-hydroxybutyrate is way above everything else. So this idea, which resulted in a study and a publication in Nature Medicine looked at beta-hydroxybutyrate as an inhibitor of the NLRP3 inflammasome, which when activated elevates IL-1 beta and other inflammatory markers. So beta-hydroxybutyrate, independent of a dietary intervention, suppressed the activation of this NLRP3 inflammasome and then the downstream cytokine cascade independent of changing right. your so, diet. So it's a endogenous metabolite that your body makes that you can consume exogenously that's functioning like a hormone and it also for reasons we don't fully understand it decreases our blood glucose significantly and that has major implications for type 2 diabetes and it's a major implications prebi- for a lot a lot of things yeah
0: all right so that's super crazy <laughs> so now I'm going to guess at what they're testing, and you may or may not know this, but what they're testing, because you said that COVID was one of the things they were looking at from an exogenous ketone test
1: And ketogenic protocol. diet, too. Ketogenic
0: and... diet, though, I understand why that yeah. would work. The ketones, are they asking the question of, hey as a signaling molecule that dampens the inflammatory response, knowing that a cytokine storm is one of the things that kills people with comorbidities with COVID, could we use this to essentially calm the immune system?
1: Yeah, so that's the idea is that if you improve metabolic biomarkers and you consume exogenous ketones by putting your body in a lower inflammatory state, it then makes the immune system hypervigilant to deal with any other challenge. We just published a study last week on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that was a case report. So an individual, he goes by the name of COPD athlete, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease has no cure. I mean, it's like a death sentence. It's irreversible hardening of the actual lung tissue itself where the elasticity of the lung and the pliability of the lung goes down. So in this context, Uh, An athlete reached out to me, and he goes by the name of COPD athlete, and now he's more or less like an influencer that uh, was experimenting on things, including a ketogenic diet, and then he added exogenous ketones. And uh, we collected data on him over the years and just got it published, uh, a case report showing that he actually uh, got back lung function. Uh, FEV1, which is like a measurement of your lung function, (laughs) actually improved over time. So this is really unheard of in COPD patients. So this was basically producing hyperketonemia with a ketogenic diet, but then later he added exogenous ketones and was using it running marathons, running races, and things like that. So uh, And now I saw, I didn't get to look into it, but just before coming here, I saw cystic fibrosis, So exogenous ketones were in a clinical trial right now with cystic fibrosis. And that was pretty interesting. And it had to do with lowering inflammatory markers to improve lung function. Dude? Yeah.
0: This is so interesting. So I have a growing hypothesis. I'm a lay person, so take it for what it's worth. But I have a growing hypothesis that just an an absolute overwhelming number of the um, issues that we face is sort of chronic illness, things that we think of as being genetic issues um, are basically we're doing things that agitate our immune system and it's the prolonged overactivity of the immune system that's really the problem. And so Mm -hmm. anything that lowers that. So going back to that key insight that you gave me at the beginning, that basically you get an insult to the immune system, whatever that may be, and then you eat something on top of that that carries pathogens or whatever and so you and then if on top of that you're also just your standard American diet which is highly inflammatory from the amount of glucose yeah. that it contains um, that we're just constantly agitating the immune system agitating agitating agitating, agitating. and and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. When I now put it into an evolutionary context, and I'm going to do something that may make you deeply uncomfortable as somebody who really understands science, but I find it incredibly useful to get a sense of what the bumpers in the, the bowling alley are. Of mm-hmm. I'm gonna create a narrative that I can sort of make these dots connect. So if I think about health from an evolutionary standpoint and I think about what fasting would be, because from an evolutionary standpoint, fasting is, hey, motherfucker, you're about to die. You better eat something. Mm-hmm. And if in those moments, things get worse and it's harder to move, harder to think, harder to yeah. see, all of that, I'm fucked. And so evolution has over this extraordinary, extraordinarily long period of time has selected for people that have a, a, it's not superhuman, but like this, everything improves by slipping into this, yo, you're actually in kind of a dangerous state. You food has obviously become scarce i need you hypervigilant, i need you focused but i'm not the immune system is going to chill out because i can't have all my resources going to that uh, which then reduces inflammation makes your joints feel better you can think more mm-hmm. clearly you don't have headaches on and on and on does that narrative though not proven out make sense
1: yeah from an evolutionary perspective so i mean i believe evolution was god's tool for creation so uh, so there's a, lot, there's a big debate between science and religion, and uh, I think a lot of the debate really f- is centered around uh, evolution and there's creative evolution or intelligent design that people talk about. But uh, many of the upper-level scientists sort of believe as they advance in their knowledge about uh, biochemistry and life and creative evolution— is that evolution? Although there's not hard evidence for this, but uh, being devout Christians, they believe that they've come to the consensus upon studying all the philosophy, all the religion, all the uh, and very deep levels of of science that creation uh, that evolution is sort of God's tool for creation and our concept of God can be highly variable even in the same religion, right? Mm. So, uh, but bringing it back to fasting, I think that going in, being in a fasted state, uh, there's an evolutionary advantage, evolution being a tool of God, that can create hypervigilance in cognition, hypervigilance in your immune system, and uh, performance Would it be enhancements
0: in, wouldn't it almost have to be the opposite that the immune system chills out?
1: Well, your immune system becomes more powerful and hypervigilant because it's not dealing with other uh, pathogens or antigens that you've introduced through your seems diet. seems very different to me. For, so uh, I don't want to
0: yeah. derail you, but I think this is important enough to, to yeah. stop on. So you've got, uh, you get a virus from the outside. You walked us mm-hmm. through, the immune system goes crazy. Yep. So, if and that's he... a good
1: thing. The immune uh, response and the inflammation is a very beneficial thing because it's like working out, right? If you do an extremely hard workout and then you take blood, you should, and you had someone looking at it, they would basically say, stop doing what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, It's the adaptive response to that stimuli, which is very good. So, when you fast, there's an adaptive response that can further augment fatty acid oxidation in the liver. Your liver becomes better at ketogenesis. So there's an upregulation of ketogenesis. There's an upregulation of ketolytic enzymes that allow your body to use the ketones for fuel. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And you become a much more efficient ketone producer and ketone utilizer when you fast. So this is this augmented response is in response to a stimulus. The same thing with your immune system. The augmented response, and if you take the peak of the response, that's when you are adapting, not the nader. The nader is when you become hypervigilant to be able to detect various antigens that you're putting in your body, and then your body is already adapted and augmented in a way to deal with that challenge. So it's like, you know, you wouldn't go into a max effort lift If you just did your max effort lift the day before, right? You want your body to recover and heal, and then you are much more uh, able to recruit the contractile apparatus to move the weight. So what makes the immune system overreact then?
0: Because I think of my story was the immune system gets some insult, whether it's a virus, whether it's the food that you eat, whatever. Mm -hmm. It gets that insult and you get inflammation, And so if inflammation is useful, but ultimately has a problematic side,
1: acute inflammation is like super useful. So think about acute inflammation as like working out, right? mm -hmm. So you have a stimulus, you have damage and then the adaptive response. So this cytokine
0: storm that kills people with COVID, mm -hmm. that, that is, uh, Due to the chronic nature of the virus, that doesn't seem to make sense. Or you're saying because, hey, the reason that it's only problematic in people that have comorbidities is because they've already had this chronic problem. That actually makes a lot of sense. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. Well, COVID is a little different. You can have, if you're, that's why healthy young people, it's very, uh, potentially very damaging for them because. A very large immune response could cause more damage to your internal organs. So if your immune system is, my term of hypervigilant is being able to detect something, deal with it, and neutralize it. Okay. So that's that's hypervigilance without overreacting. So that's a proper immune response. Whereas if you have an autoimmune condition, under no situations that I'm aware of are autoantibodies beneficial. Maybe they are. I don't know. From my knowledge, you know, about the immune system, immunology, in no context are autoantibodies a good thing. If you what have does that an mean? autoimmune, meaning your body reacting to itself, so antibodies against itself, against mm-hmm. proteins that are in itself. And I mean, we all have some degree of autoantibodies, but under I don't know of any benefit to autoantibodies. So some people have more than others, but there are a host of people who have autoimmune disorders. And in the context of an autoimmune disorder, your immune system is sort of compromised and it's hypovigilant. So it's not able to uh, augment your immune system in a way until the situation becomes very dire. So, and in, in that context, when you launch a massive immune response, then you're just like dire straits. In an autoimmune condition, your immune system is chronically activated. So and now so it's just you know,
0: worn thin, it's fucking exhausted
1: uh so it it underreacts until it's dire and then it goes crazy yeah so that's not not all situations are that are that scenario but i think that's a good approximation or overview of kind of what's happening okay so now help
0: me understand because that all fits this narrative that i'm telling myself Mm -hmm. uh but the young, healthy people having such a robust immune system that they overreact, that's the one... Do you think that's just Mm. something that has to do with that this is a virus we've never seen before and so we're not adapted to deal with it? And so it just causes a, a sort of glitch in the matrix
1: or...? Yeah. The pathogenicity is like super, it's like hyper pathogenic in that way that it can sort of hijack your immune system. And when you have a massive cytokine storm and it can attack your internal organs, your heart, your brain, your liver, your kidneys. And uh, if we had type two diabetes or we have comorbidities on top of that, then our system is weakened. And that's why we are much more susceptible. If we're older, if we have type two diabetes, obesity that scenario, but in healthy young people, and this is, you know, I'm not a COVID uh, researcher, but from my understanding is, um, you know, that's, uh, these long haulers do get damaged to internal organs like the heart and then they have to deal with it, you know, over time. And it becomes more of a, it deal with can it can become repair? a chronic condition. Is there a way to unwind that stuff? Well, yeah, the heart can repair itself to some extent. The liver can too, but kidneys not as much, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's going to be a fallout from from young people that are perfectly metabolically healthy getting this disorder, mm. uh, getting this condition. Um, so that I don't know what you know the outcome's going to be. But I'm getting a lot of emails from people, young healthy people that have gotten COVID, and now they have, uh, and personal friends of mine too have had it. There are no clinics dealing with long COVID, mm-hmm. dealing with the, the host of things that come after dealing with this disease, even though they're not positive for COVID, the, uh, the damage that they have is not easily undone. So there's going to be, it's going to open up a whole nother market, I think, of clinics that treat people who've had COVID mm-hmm. that need to specialize in that, you know, uh, these situations and every condition is kind of unique. So you're going to have, need a diverse array of people, like you know a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, uh, you know a renal physiologist. Mm. Uh, I believe that that's going to be the scenario that we're going to be faced with. That there are many people looking for help, and the doctors can't help them, and then we need to develop specialized clinics. But if we focus on metabolic health now, that's something we can do now. All right. So give me the, like,
0: what's the straightforward things that people should be doing to optimize metabolic health?
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, glycemia is probably the most important biomarker that we can track. Keep your blood sugar low. Yeah. So, and you can measure fasting, blood glucose. And then if you wear a continuous glucose monitor you are basically seeing a video. So if I wanna study a cheetah, I could look at a picture of a cheetah running or I can watch a video of a cheetah running. I'm gonna get a lot more information out of the video of the cheetah running, right? So that's what a continuous glucose monitor is giving you that real-time information. Because that, there's so much uh,
0: variability, individual yes, variability, uh, the, we, we have to do it all for ourselves.
1: Understanding the variability is far more important than looking at a snapshot of fasting But I mean glucose. from person
0: to person. So instead yep. of you just saying go eat red meat or yep. go eat broccoli, Yeah, yeah. It's everybody has to to get the optimal results. People should test this stuff for themselves because they're going to react differently than somebody else eating the same exact thing.
1: That's very, very true. So, uh, and people have different physiological responses to that. Uh, So, I thrive off a low carbohydrate, ketogenic diet, and uh, my glycemia is typically maintained between 110 and 60 right? So uh, I, I rarely get out of that scenario so and eat? I feel great. So a lot of people ask me about the carnivore diet or plant-based diet. So uh, the carnivore diet, from my opinion, is a diet that can sustain life. <laughs> a vegan diet can sustain life, but it's, it's not optimal. I think we are, from an evolutionary perspective, from, uh, that, that we are omnivores, Right, Mm. so we are basically hardwired and evolved to eat to be extremely adaptable in what we are eating. So, So what do you think when you look at? We become less adaptable if we're eating carnivore, and less adaptable less adaptable
0: if we're eating carnivore.
1: If for long term long term carnivore adherence, uh, a carnivore diet is okay to use intermittently for different things, but. If you are eating meat and only meat, then you become, and you go back to eating dairy or plants or something like this, you're going to have an immune response. I think it's good to introduce a variety of foods. And if you are following carnivore, it's good to get a rainbow of different meats, right? So from pork to, to beef, to liver, to chicken, to fish, and I think that's important, not just a steak. Every day, and I think the carnivore diet is a useful diet for uh, for weight loss to some extent. It's like hypopalatable and hyper satiating, and I think it reduces our hedonic response to food. Like that's why the ketogenic diet is so powerful for weight loss. It's like you know, you did four to one ketogenic diet, you can tell it's it's hyper satiating and hypopalatable. You're not gonna overeat. It's and gross. Weight. Yeah, it's gross. And so, it, yeah. So uh, so the utility there is that it becomes a means for calorie restriction, right? So if we calorie restrict a carb-based processed food diet, we're going to get benefits. Uh, probably not as much benefits as a ketogenic diet or carnivore diet, but the utility of a carnivore diet as a weight loss tool is that your glycemia is controlled and you can. it promotes, I'm not going to say healthy weight loss, but weight loss over time. And I use it from time to time, I, do, I, I don't do do like a carnivore, months of carnivore, but I'll use it, I'll do a couple carnivore days where I just eat meat and that's it, or just eggs or something.
0: Is it because there are nutrients in vegetables
1: that you think that we need, or? Well, actually that's a good point and a good question. Um, so a carnivore diet, especially if you have organ meat, is super, super high in nutrition. And if you are getting surplus amount of calories on a carnivore diet, especially with organ meat, then you can have hypervitaminosis. There's so many vitamins like uh, from B12 to vitamin A and other things that blood work can actually show you're out of normal range. So a carnivore diet, especially with organ meat, is really, really good in the context of a calorie deficit. So if you're on a very limited amount of calories and you wanna get as much nutrition as possible, with the least amount of calories, a carnivore diet is the perfect approach. And that could be, I mean, that explains like the majority of people out there. So I think in that context, the carnivore diet could be the ideal diet for the majority of people. And once you lose the weight and get your ideal weight, then you could introduce more of a omnivorous diet. And I is that the though, fiber is really important, I believe, from getting plants into the diet. And I think that's why it's is that not, important? For the diversity of your gut microbiome, also for digestion. If you have, uh, you know, if I eat a steak, I like to have it with a salad or broccoli or something like that. The fiber actually attenuates the rise in glycemia and the insulin response. So you can, it helps slow protein digestion and decrease gastric absorption. The fiber does. So there's benefits there just from the process, from the way your body processes protein. So that's that's a benefit uh, for adding fiber. So, and we see that with a ketogenic diet, when we add vegetables in the form of non-glycemic fiber, that attenuates the rise in glucose and uh, which would be minimal anyway, but also the release of insulin. So, the release of insulin is intimately linked to various nutrients entering circulation. And with the ketogenic diet or carnivore, that would be like the branched chain amino acids like leucine and other amino acids would trigger an insulin response. So we can attenuate that and uh, improve our overall metabolic health just by adding fiber. And then the fiber, the diversity of the fiber we're giving will reflect in the diversity of the gut microbiome. and. Uh, Another recent study came out about fermented foods. So what may even be more important than having a diversity of fiber is actually having fermented foods Hmm. can contribute to the population, uh, uh, can reverse gut, gut dysbiosis and increase the diversity of the gut microbiome. And the stuff is uh, so fascinating and so complex. Let me ask a pointed question. So is a calorie? It doesn't have to be, though. I think it's super simple. But I think the science can be complex. But when it comes What's to super actionable things that people can do, do, yeah, there's. It, it's pretty simple. Say it in a sentence. Pretty much... Uh, Carbohydrate restriction, like some level, uh, based in in relation to what it what we're being advised from a USDA perspective, uh, reducing carbohydrates and replacing grains and sugars with uh, vegetables, so non-glycemic vegetables, and keeping our protein moderate and keeping our fat, you know, relatively high. I think is a good thing uh, for the majority of people, but some people, like my wife, were coming here. She had, you know, two sugary muffins for breakfast and she thrives off that. Although when we're coming here, she did say, do you think they have food? I'm getting kind of hungry. So I never get hungry. Now I feel terrible because we didn't offer her food no, when she came. No, and yes, no, we, we have We plenty. understand all the regulations. of have <laughs> But I mean, the point is that if you, you can thrive off a carbohydrate based diet, but you, you're Glycemic variability will correlate to food cravings, so if you want to go throughout your day and have optimal productivity and feel optimal energy, I've found as many other people do that a low carb approach is the way to go, and it's probably due in part because you do not have postprandial dips in your blood glucose is postprandial post eating yeah, so when you eat carbohydrates, you know for me, if I have carbs, like a pop tart within 60 to 90 minutes, I'm down to like 55 milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. So it will it might shoot up to uh, 150, 160. Do you come back down that
0: fast because you have muscle mass? Like that's fast. That's
1: well, yeah, you get an insulin response and then that triggers glucose disposal, the insulin. Mm -hmm. And then I get another craving and it becomes a vicious cycle. And that pretty much explains, you know, the majority of the American population, but you could effectively attenuate that or completely abolish that simply by carbohydrate restriction a low-carb ketogenic diet doesn't have to be ketogenic it just could be low carb you moderate it to like 50 to 100 grams a day and you're right on that edge of ketosis but if you do do a ketogenic diet like we talked about there are benefits to being in a hyper ketonemic state So the ketones then act as an alternative energy source, anti-inflammatory molecule, and a hormone, which has many beneficial effects, even at the level of epigenetic. So it's an epigenetic modulator to produce adaptations to get you to have more benefits to being in a facet or ketogenic state. And we know that the ketone body beta-hydroxybutyrate can epigenetically modify The production of enzymes that allow you to burn fat more efficiently and make ketones more efficiently, and also transport ketones more efficiently, like the transporters. And then, even at the level of the mitochondria, the ketolytic enzymes are also upregulated through ketone induced epigenetic regulation. Mm. So, this is like new science that's emerging. Uh, We've observed, you know, you observe people who fast and then they fast again and they get into a state of ketosis much quicker. So the basic science is basically pointing to the direction that the ketone metabolites itself and this could also be true for lactate and other metabolites uh, are actually activate genetic pathways in genes that can actually enhance enzymatic activity to make us more adaptable to the diet and to make it easier if we go into a fasted state. I think you got uh, like the keto flu when you did the ketogenic diet. Delicious. Yeah, so, so maybe if you transitioned into the ketogenic diet and consume exogenous ketones in small amounts, your, your liver was not making enough ketones to prevent glucose withdrawal in the brain. Mm. So that's part of it, but also your electrolytes were probably off and things like that. Uh, a ketone salt product supplies ketones and electrolytes, so it kind of hits two birds with one stone. That's so that could be like do a way they have around calories. It. Uh, yeah, I don't think manufacturers put calories on there, but that's a good point because I don't think FDA they don't need to do that. They're not the regulations. I ask because such.
0: I did the longest fast I've ever done was five days, and the last two days I was just non-functioning. It was yeah. it was like being sick. And that's after I am extraordinarily good at burning ketones. I was taking my ketone measurements all the time. I felt great in ketosis, a 24 hour fast, very easy, 48 hour fast, easy, 72 starts to get dicey. By the fourth day, it just was, it was so deleterious to my business that I was like, I'm not doing a five day fast anymore, Mm -hmm. but I'm perfectly willing to accept there's just something I was doing wrong. I was water only. But I was mm-hmm. taking pinches of salt every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just gnarly.
1: Yes. Well, because inter- you mentioned for day four and five, so I've done a lot of fasts and 72 hours is really the sweet spot for a many, many different reasons. One thing is that I don't I monitor the fast by my strength. If my strength starts to go down, Mm. that's a negative indicator and also muscle mass. So I tend not to lose any strength or muscle mass if I do 72 hours, but four and five day fast or one week fast will lower my strength. And typically I feel it in the weeks after, a week or two after. So also if we want to enhance our insulin resistance and maximize autophagy. I think that we should, a 72-hour fast, after about 48 hours for a healthy person, at 72 hours, we've gotten about 24 hours of a glucose ketone index of one, which means your glucose comes down and your ketones come up to the millimolar concentration are about equal, about Mm -hmm. three millimolar each. And in that state, the level of insulin suppression and other Things being suppressed can maximize autophagy. So at a 72-hour fast, you have about a 24 hours of autophagy, and taking it beyond that, from my opinion, is not there's not going to be any benefits. A lot of it for a healthy person, if you're super insulin resistant and your insulin's like around you know 10, 11, 12, that prolonging that to four and five, or maybe even one week can help bring that down. And you have, if you have a lot of weight to lose, then it's probably more beneficial Mm -hmm. to fast longer. But for the average person, 72 hours will give you all the benefits of fasting and reduce the negative consequences from the hormone to like your muscle strength, muscle function. So that that's what I do personally. And I do it in a way that it's kind of like an oil change for your car, right? So it's fine tuning your metabolic health to optimize your insulin sensitivity and uh, and I also advocate for giving blood every you know 3 months to 4 months so to force your body to replenish Well, it lowers your iron. So for males, they have high iron, it's a bad thing for longevity. So if you want to live longer, the one thing, there's like, you know, 10 things that you could do like off time, but giving blood is never really talked about, but I think giving blood is probably a a super important thing to do if you're a male. Uh, All right.
0: So you're God, you create a, you create this evolutionary mechanism Yep. By which you're going to create this cool creation called man. Yeah, Humans. Yep. Uh, and why on earth would you make it such that they have to give blood to maintain optimal iron levels? That seems well, super fishy.
1: No doubt. Like early man was bleeding a lot. So it's, Wow, isn't... you really think it comes down to that? Yeah, I mean, they're slipping Whoa. on. I mean, I, I walk around barefoot on my property and I cut my foot the other day and probably lost like a half pint of blood. So this oh, was like normal. Jesus. I mean, we would have you cut it on. <laughs> I don't know it's like a piece of metal or a nail or something like that but i mean there's things it, it's normal for you know, early ancestors to get injured, to lose blood, and we want to have a reserve in blood. Women don't have the reserve because they menstruate unless they're postmenopausal. That's so interesting. But, you know, high iron uh, can drive something called the Fenton reaction and make a more oxidative state and just can be uh, negative consequences for our longevity. And I think that's why women actually age better than men. And there's like a little bit of uh, a gap there as far as longevity. And I think the iron thing could be- part of that.
0: Um,
1: But, you know, that's just one of many things. It's also good. It feels good to give blood. I mean, you're giving back, but there are many benefits to giving blood from the perspective of just reducing your iron. And then I, you know, through the blood organization, they ping me every three to four months. Hey, it's time for you to give blood. So I give double red, which is double the amount of of, uh, red blood cells. Uh, And it's made my hematocrit, which is on the high end of normal, to, to come back down to normal. And I think that's gonna pay big dividends over time. Like having a normal to maybe even slightly low normal hematocrit over 10 years is going to give you a big advantage in longevity to the person that's like, you know, elevated. Uh, the same thing with glycemia. So if your hemoglobin A1C or your average glucose is 100 and you can bring that down with a low carb diet to 85, Uh, you're not diabetic if it's a hundred, but you know, you're not clinically diagnosed, but if you're able to bring that down to 85, that's going to add like three to five years to your life, I think over time. Uh, well, if you're like at 130 and you bring that down to like below a hundred, I think for sure, that's going to probably add, you know, a, a couple years to your life, you know, that, that would be my estimate. So even though, you know, there's many people out there who do not have clinical diabetes, Uh, and there's no need for them from the medical establishment to wear a continuous glucose monitor or to be checking Mm -hmm. or these biomarkers, it's going to be super advantageous for them uh, to be lower. So lower is always better, from lower insulin, lower glucose, lower glycemic variability, all these things are simple things that people can do to improve their metabolic health and their longevity.
0: I love it. Dude, talking to you is so much fun. Where can people uh, follow you, see all your latest stuff?
1: Yeah, uh, same spot, ketonutrition.org. And uh, on social media, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So just search my name and find me through that. But Keto Nutrition, we have a blog, comes out every uh, two times a month, and we have a newsletter. So sign up for that.
0: Love it. Guys, sign up. Trust me, dude. As you just saw, this guy's full of so much useful information. And usability is the ultimate thing uh, that is the test of something's uh, worthiness, in my opinion. And speaking of things that are usable and worthy, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.